0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Think about it. The idea that it takes 45 days to close a loan is very expensive. We want to take that average down to
0: 15 days. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. There's been an unpleasant shift in the year around mortgages. Rates are up significantly, home prices have lost their momentum and may well fall this year, and all of a sudden, borrowing and lending has become a lot more difficult to do well, which is one of the reasons why there have been a few mortgage-themed episodes on the show recently. Today, though, we're not talking about consumers at least not directly. We're talking B2B and how my guest can help lenders to reduce the time it takes them to close on a mortgage. Though as it turns out, that actually has a very big and very positive impact, not just on the consumer experience, but even on the cost of the underlying loan. Elon Shalev, currently you are streamlining the mortgage lifecycle as CEO and co-founder of Alfie. And at various times in the past, you've been an author, a crowdfunding pioneer, a major in the Israeli Air Force, an entrepreneur, and an MIT graduate. So welcome to the show. What experiences have shaped you prior to making that big decision of yours to move to Boston to pursue your MBA?
1: Well, I spent 12 and a half years in the Israeli Air Force, had a military career, spent years as a super admin of enterprise software, and also spent years as a commanding officer. I always had a passion for entrepreneurship. I didn't know exactly how to express it within the military boundaries. I ended up writing a book. It took me six months to write the first draft. And then afterwards, I was a little bit lucky because at the time, late 2011, if I remember correctly, crowdfunding was not a thing in Israel there was an Israeli startup doing crowdfunding, that they were a crowdfunding platform. And I was super lucky to get introduced to the to people over there and leverage their platform to finance the book. I think that end-to-end experience convinced me that entrepreneurship is something that I'd like to do.
0: I think one of the things I liked is it was a novel and and I've also sort of a hobbyist novelist although it's been a long time since I got down to any writing but obviously then from there you took what would be a big step to move from Israel to Boston what did you learn from the process of becoming an international student at, at one of the world's top schools
1: I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't know I was just a military person and I didn't know what I want to do except that I want to be founding whatever I'm doing. I realized that uh, an MBA specifically at MIT Sloan would be very beneficial for me to learn about business as well as how to run a company from the ground up, how to found a company with some discipline. So then there's the whole, you know, get the GMAT done and all that stuff. But afterwards, you know, you need to finance the thing. And I was not ready for that to be as expensive as it is. And there's a product, a shelf product in Israel, in Israeli banks, that they give for students who go abroad to to study master's degrees and and PhDs and all that stuff. And apparently, I didn't know that you can negotiate the terms. Again, as a military person, I didn't know nothing about business. I didn't know you can negotiate anything. So we were like 40-something future prospect MBA students. And we grouped together, and it was one person who Led the negotiations for us as a group. He was creating some sort of slabs, student loan asset-backed securities by pulling us together as a group and reducing the interest rates. So we were able to get uh, 50 basis points off from whatever it was. And it may not sound a lot, but if the the interest rate at the time was so low in Israel, so instead of having to pay 2.6 percent, we all got a 2.1 percent deal. When we finally did that, and I went to the states to get the MBA done, I realized that in America, for the same purpose of the loan, for the same amount, same person, the equivalent American version of Elon, they would take a loan for six percent at the time, relative to two point one percent. I was just flabbergasted, and I thought, "This is this is super strange." And that kind of led me to to research
0: that space. And those services went compounded over the life of the student loan make a big difference between affordability and lifestyle and and flexibility post-studying. I mean, we're going to talk soon about your move straight from MIT into entrepreneurship, but oftentimes it is the student loan that can hold somebody back because suddenly, say, well, I need the salary to to start paying the student loan back. Maybe I'll do it in a few years. And we know how that all works. A few years becomes 10 years, becomes 20 years, and never really happens. You know, that leads to the obvious question. You know, you took the big expense and, and the big risk and the big time commitment to to move to Boston to pursue the MBA, I guess, in simple terms, was it worth taking on all that risk, all that debt? Uh, Did it make you a better entrepreneur?
1: Absolutely. Entrepreneurship is a profession, a profession that requires close attention to details and discipline on multiple facets of the business. And if it is justifiable for a person to get an MBA and transition from finance to product management, or transition from product management to consulting or transition from sales and marketing to something else, then it absolutely is justifiable to get an MBA to mess, not to master maybe, but to be a jack of all trades of all of those aspects. The likelihood of starting a company and, and being successful is very low already. So arming yourself with education that is tailored specifically for that purpose sounds to me like a very good investment. And I have to say it was, it was an immense investment in myself. I learned business analysis capabilities that I did not have earlier. I learned communications for leaders in a business environment. And finally, I learned about culture and even some quantitative and qualitative significance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Definitely worth it. And if someone can afford it, I definitely recommend. And specifically, MIT Sloan was an amazing experience for me. Even learning about accounting, and and I'm actually using that. I mean, now, you know, January, tax returns are up. I've been doing the bookkeeping for the company, and and I feel really comfortable doing it.
0: Tell me, maybe first, what is Alfie? What is this business that you founded coming out of the MBA? And what was that real-world experience like of getting this thing going?
1: Alfie is a technology company. It's software as a service, and we provide enterprise software to mortgage lenders to help them close loans faster. That's the gist of it. I will say that MIT Sloan's is very action learning oriented. The motto of the larger MIT is mens e manos, which is mind and hand. So we recognize the importance of the mind and, and, and the academic acumen, but also recognize the need to go out there and build with your hands. That kept me connected to the real world, which leads to the second part of your question. I'll say that because of that, I felt really comfortable going out to the real world after my MBA. And I was able to leverage a lot of classes and a lot of classmates helping me on group projects to verify and justify that the plan moving forward with Elfie is A, executable, B, sound, and C, a good use of my time in terms of what I wanted to achieve with it.
0: When listeners go to Alfie.io, your, your homepage, they'll see front and center, basically the headline of the the homepage when you arrive is that you're all about streamlining the mortgage origination process. And I guess it's something that's almost just felt inevitable to us in the the real world as consumers that you know if you're going to apply for a mortgage it's going to take forever to to close and maybe it will get a day or two faster but it was always going to be this big slow thing. But what's your vision for the space and what could and maybe even should be possible in terms of speeding up that closing process with the help of, of companies like Alfie?
1: We can take a look at 2016 to 2019, and I don't think we should talk too much about 2020, 2021, and even 2022 and even 2023 because of the because of the different different environments. But if we look at the data, 2016 to 2019, pretty stable, 45 day average to close a loan and when i say the close of loan i mean from application to closing which when you get the money as a borrower 45 days in the mortgage industry of application constitutes six very distinct data points that's when the clock starts if if the lender doesn't receive those six data points it is not considered an application and on closing date that's when we stop the clock so that's 45 days 2016 2019 sometimes you know a little bit higher sometimes a little bit lower but that's the average the idea That it takes 45 days to close a mortgage is problematic for several reasons. One, borrowers sometimes need to get the loan earlier. Otherwise, they're going to lose the house because someone else is going to close and bring the money. The second thing, and that's something that not a lot of people maybe know about. It took me a lot of time to realize that the sooner the loan is closed, the easier it is for the lender to sell the loan downstream and get a higher premium for that loan. To unpack that, we need to go two and a half steps backwards. When a borrower goes to a lender, let's say Joe Schmo goes to ABC Mortgage Company, and they ask for a mortgage, they apply for a mortgage. At some point, they need to get a rate, let's say just 4% interest rate on the loan. That 4% came from the following calculation that the lender did. The lender received information from the borrower, plugged that into an automated underwriting system, AUS. That AUS is connected to investors, those who will actually buy the loan afterwards to put that loan in a mortgage-backed security. A mortgage-backed security is a collection of loans that together reduce the risk of forfeiting the entire money. So that AUS, the automated unearning system, spins back different results as well as different price that the investor will pay based on the time that it will take to close the loan and deliver it to the investor. So. On a 45-day application to close average versus a 15-day average, we're talking about 30 days difference. Those 30 days could become 30 basis points of difference that the investor will pay.
0: And I imagine that's kind of a volatility premium that they set the price today, but the loan isn't closed for 45 days, they're carrying some risk in the market. And hence, if you can say, well, this loan's going to appear and, and be booked much sooner, that narrows that risk for them, and therefore they can uh, offer a bit more.
1: It's literally a market risk calculation. So the investors commit to whatever they commit to, that translates into 4%, and that's locked. You know, If we look now at what the Fed Funds rate did, I mean, think about it. If if you lock the rates 45 days in advance, and then 40, 45 days later, the market is already at 6 or 7%, you made the deal of, your, of life because this is a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. So the idea that it takes 45 days to close a loan is very expensive. And to answer your question about division is to take that average down to 15 days. This is a once-in-a-lifetime decision to most borrowers. Buying a house, taking a mortgage, it's not like buying some groceries over Uber Eats or something. It, it's a serious financial decision that has tremendous effect on people's lives. To assume that it should take two or five days or 10 days, I think it's a stretch. But 15 days is very reasonable to aim for. And and some lenders actually are able to to lend in 15 days average, but it doesn't scale. There's some hacks behind the scenes that they do that do not scale. So if you're doing $100 million a year and you want to grow to $200, $300 million a year and keep your 15-day average, it's impossible to do so at the same cost. But we want to make it viable. We want to make a $40 billion lender be able to support the $80 billion demand that they have To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To translate that into impact, now I am going to use the 2020 or 2021 examples. We're talking about more than $4 trillion were originated in the United States of America. $4 trillion. So you take 30 basis points, multiply by $4 trillion, you get $12 billion surplus. This is insane, right? Right. It's
0: insane. And the thing is, it's not, this is not like profit. So this is not a case of 12 billion that someone's losing. They don't want to pay it either. They would rather not pay that 12 billion. So it is just, it's free money, free money to be to be put back in the system, which obviously in a time of cost of living crisis is very gratefully received. And of course, in a time of huge interest rate volatility from the market, I guess, is equally well received to let's, let's not sit around for 45 days waiting for interest rates to change anymore. So what is involved in the LV product suite that helps make this sort of streamlining, this fast closure of mortgages a, a possibility at, at scale, as you said?
1: Very early on in our research, we realized that there's a dearth of innovation, specifically in the back office of mortgage lenders. And to translate that into more real terms, we're talking about three major functions. We're talking about the loan processor the loan underwriter and the loan closer loan processor normally will collect the data verify the data and prepare the data to be underwritten by the underwriter the underwriter takes that information underwrites the loan assesses the risk and this decides whether or not this loan should move down the stream to get closed and then the closer basically is the last line of defense to again verify data that all data is correct and they have, they have a bunch of other things they need to collect and then verify so we're talking about collection of data verification of data assessing the data and preparing the data for closing. That's all it is. The tricky part is that every lender has their own agenda of how to run the operations to achieve the same result. The result is very strict. There's a mortgage, there's a note, there's like a bunch of things, and it's very standardized. The output is standardized. The input is also standardized. In between is definitely not. And that's based on the operational agenda of the lender to try to save costs. I'll give you one tiny example just to give it some color. So some lenders like to pull a soft credit report. It costs money. Let's say I'm just making up numbers. Let's say it costs $5. Would you pay $5 per every loan that goes through your system? Or will you wait until later to do that? It really depends on the capabilities of the operation to actually close loans that hit the pipeline. So one thing that they will do is they're going to look at their funnel and say, okay, from from 100 loans that we get as an application, how many actually go to the finish line? And when they go to the finish line or when they don't go to the finish line, is it because something related to the credit score? And if it is, then maybe there's a way to front load it, pay $5 on a soft pool and not pay $25 on a hard pool that is 100% required. And this is just one tiny example. There's like a hundred of procedures that happen behind the scenes. So there needs to be some sort of a product that allows operations and, and managers to decide what they want to do, when they want to do it, and dynamically change. Whatever they decided, based on financial results, there are legitimate reasons why that level of granularity of flexibility does not exist in the market, and there's a void that can only be filled by startups at this point in time and Elfie is just one of those startups trying to do exactly that,
0: clearly, yeah, we're in a world where analytics and and tech is making big strides. I think you've dropped some hints there, but Is there a role in there for also just better analytics of the data in designing and operating those processes?
1: Definitely, definitely there's a role. First, there's a lot of insights that could be harvested and leveraged and used to improve procedures in real time in some cases. But I'll say there are two elements to any data analytics scenario. The first one is managerial knowledge about what's going on. Just like you have financial statements, you you probably have some metrics that you want to review. I don't know time per close per type of employee and and all that stuff. Normally today, those reports do not exist out of the box inside the software provider's tool, but they are exported into a file that then can be consumed by a third party that needs to um, turn that into graphs and, and, and you know what. The problem with that is that as soon as you export data, it is immediately not in sync with what actually happened. That data is no longer relevant. So what we already have proven in the past is, and that's pretty simple. You you see that with other software providers where you have data analytics embedded within the product and it's connected in real time to the database. So you can in real time, see graphs and visualizations of, of key metrics that you care about. But then the question is who decides which graphs are there and who decides what the data structure is to provide information to those graphs and, and provide insights. And what we wanted to prove, which we did proof of concept was to give users the ability to create graphs based on third-party solutions that live inside our software, connected to our database, embeddedly in the product. We're gonna roll that out sometime in 2023. There's several tools that we're looking at. We've proven it with two different tools. We need to decide because pricing wise, it's it's very expensive if you use some tools versus other ones, and this is a third-party risk kind of thing that we need to figure out. But that's the boring stuff, to be honest. The cool stuff is leveraging machine learning. And specifically, I'm saying machine learning, not AI, because it is what it is. It's machine learning. There are many schools of thought, but specifically, one example is there. there's three models for machine learning, descriptive, prescriptive, and predictive. So on the descriptive side, you just describe information from the past. Prescriptive is you offer Recommendations what to do based on information from the past, and predictive is what you predict that will happen based on information from the past and we've dabbled with the last two where as soon as there are loans living in the system in, in an active mode in, in progress you know from application to closing any stage throughout that process, there must be a way to assess the likelihood of that loan to actually close, leveraging historical data that you have, and based on that likelihood you can extrapolate very important insights into pipeline prioritization and i'll give you an example i am a loan processor i have 100 loans in my pipeline i know that in a month i can address maybe 50 of them how do i prioritize based on what based on loan amount based on Who sends me more emails based on the date I received the application, based on estimated closing date? How do I prioritize my my work? So there's another tool that you can use, which is the likelihood of closing the loan. And then you can extrapolate. Maybe you want to optimize revenue for the company. So you can take the likelihood of closing a loan, multiply it by the revenue based on the interest rate of the loan. And then all of a sudden, you have a very strong insight that you can prioritize by. Then the question is, how accurate is that prediction? So just to give you a little bit of numbers, we ran, we had like 2,000 loans, I think, real data, very poor information was there. Like maybe, maybe it was six data points that we can actually use to train the model. We did a regression model, non-machine learning. And we got to, I forget the numbers exactly, but somewhere between 60 and 70 something percent of uh, accuracy in terms of predicting the likelihood of the closing alone. And when we use machine learning, we used three different models. The, the highest performing one was uh, 97% accurate and, and, and the, the lowest was like 92. Now it's possible that it's, you know, maybe 2000 is not enough and all this, but the machine learning models were by far beating the regression models. And I was very big on regressions when I studied economics, I really enjoyed statistics and and, and and regressions, and I was just blown away by the capabilities. And when we introduced that capability or that plan to introduce the capability into our software to potential customers, they were amazed by it. And so I can definitely see machine learning helping out with predictive models to prioritize pipelines. The prescriptive model, I think, can help out with not recommending what to do, but sharing what in other cases based on historical data what the next step would have been in order to drive forward the loan so it could
0: close clearly the more complex it becomes the more we do need support from from algorithms and yeah we can see it in all aspects of life at the moment and i think that's where we're going to be in a world right where it's supported by models and yeah i think the old tools straight up accuracy they can probably still do a decent job yeah 60 70% accuracy is still much better than nothing but it's not ninety seven percent, which obviously introduces some of its own challenges about self-fulfilling prophecies and things when you start investing all your time in in the ones that the model says will close, and you know that makes them more likely to close. So you do need to be careful of those sort of feedback loops, but yeah, I think it's an exciting stage for for the analytics and um sort of just to wrap up, I guess analytics, yeah, you know, as I said, my background's in the the credit world and yeah, I didn't work for FICO, but I built similar scores. I hear there's no mention of you looking or at all interested in building credit scores. So is that a a space you're looking in or are you more about the the process and, and movement of the data than risk management, risk prediction?
1: Yes, in this case, we definitely steer clear from anything related to risk assessment. We are providing the users with the tools to review any material that they need to and assess the risk on their own. This is a business of its own. You know, There's so many companies just focusing on risk assessment. So for us to focus not only on what we're doing, but also on areas that companies put 100% of their resources on would even feel arrogant from our end. Our forte is focusing on the process automation. And, but I also mention in terms of risk assessment, again, it goes back to the mind-blowing description of the, the way the pricing of the interest rate happens behind the scenes the risk actually is taken by the investors, not even the lenders. The lenders are not assuming any risk. I mean, the only risk they're assuming is whether or not they'll be able to sell the loan afterwards. And they already get an an approval to sell the loan afterwards before the loan has even been originated. So the investors are taking the risk, which means the investors are supposed to assess the risk. And what they do is they do that with a very very fancy AUS, providing that tool through our platform to the lender so the lender can use the guidelines from the investor to underwrite the loan. On top of that, sometimes they won't do a loan even though theoretically they could sell that loan for whatever reason. They can decide what their own thing as long as it's fair. And so that's when they put their own risk assessment. So it's kind of unlikely that we can come up with a better risk assessment tool, convince the large investors, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, to use our tool and then enforce that on all of our competitors who also provide software. So it just doesn't sound right to me to to focus on it at this point in time in our in our uh, journey.
0: You mentioned that there are other risks that get born in there and obviously lenders are naturally oftentimes conservative people. I see you've got built in checks and and tools to help with compliance and things. so this is not about the fastest possible loan we're going to race to one day same day delivery. There are natural checks that have been built in there to say, well, there's a reasonable minimum. it's about getting rid of 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 the unnecessary part. So you know for a conservative lender who's saying, I don't want to move too fast. What what in the elfi tool suite is there to to help protect and make sure that the necessary I's are dotted and, and t's are crossed?
1: That is an interesting question, and I'll say that again. We are hosting the process, and there are many different procedures that need to happen within the process. So first, we enforce some sort of milestone structure where there's, there's a workflow. You know, first milestone, second milestone, third milestone, all that stuff. That by itself, by the way, even is configurable. But the idea is that some things can happen only when they need to happen, and some things cannot happen before something else happens. Another thing that is important, I think, and because you mentioned some compliance, there are obviously compliance layers that need to be taken into consideration when closing a loan. And specifically, a use case that we haven't touched yet, we're aiming to touch it in 2023, is actually the loans that go to Fannie and Freddie. Those those mortgage those loans that become mortgage backed securities after after the fact. Currently, we're supporting business purpose lenders, which are fix and flip loans and rental property loans and new construction loans versus the consumers who actually take the mortgage and buy a house and live in it. And those loans that go into Fannie and Freddie, these loans are under severe scrutiny. So there needs to be a compliance layer sitting on top of the of our solution to make sure that the T's are crossing, the, the I's are dotted. It's interesting, you know, the 10-day kind of goal, I think there's some compliance requirements to do something. Within ten days of closing the loan, so I'm thinking if the loan is closed in two days, you may not have enough time to actually do what you need to do during those two days. It takes it takes time to verify stuff.
0: Elon, Elfie is a young and nimble startup, so you're able to adjust based on on what you're seeing developing. So so as you think through what your plans are for 2023 and beyond, what are some of the big trends maybe that you're watching closely in the mortgage space? And where are you focusing Alfie's ambitions?
1: So the first and foremost thing that we're looking at is the interest rate and the uh, ramifications of that on the mortgage market, the the mortgage-backed securities prices, as well as the 10-year treasury, and all the way down to the actual individual interest rates on a loan-level basis. It's pretty obvious that the market uh, has taken a a downturn and and slowed. I mean, definitely not four trillion dollars are going to be originated in 2023. But I think the predictions are 2.3 trillion, which I find it interesting. You know, before 2019, you would see a good year would be a two trillion dollar year, a bad year would be 1.4, an average year. When I when I wrote my thesis about this business, I was referring to 1.8 trillion year as an average, but 2.3 is a pretty nice number. However, and that's big, however. If you if you don't consider only volume, like the number, the $2.3 trillion, but you consider the number of units, you realize that house prices went up so high, so much. So the number of units go down. So if the number of units go down, there is a fewer loans that are being created. Normally, before 2020, you would see in some publicly traded companies portray seven to ten million loans a year in in the industry, and now we're talking about potentially four, five, six. So it's a pretty uh, large hit, especially if the way you're making money as a software provider is based on closed loans. So if if you're used to 10 million loans to be out there, now you expect five, you basically half your total addressable market. However, this is an opportunity, actually for everybody. I wanted to say both lenders and software providers, but actually consumers as well. And, and here's why. Interest rates are up dramatically, dramatically up. Uh, I, I assume based on following the news that it's going to stay high, you know, Fed fund rate 5% or so and by the end of 2023. But at some point, it will go back down to promote a growth and prosperity. And when it does, there's going to be at least a year worth, if not two years worth of borrowers who took mortgages because they wanted to buy a house and live in it that are super high seven percent, eight percent. And guess what these people are going to do? They're going to refinance their loans. And when they do, there's going to be a, a boom of refi, which exactly happened in 2020 and 2021 when, when interest rates went down. So the same wave is going to happen, maybe not four trillion dollars, but it's going to be a wave. And that will happen somewhere in 2024, 2025, I have to assume. And we want to be there when that happens so we could support. Again, it's Supporting the lenders who are tax-savvy and forward-looking with their operational aspirations so they can double or triple their volumes with the same amount of staff and capitalize on their ability to be more efficient. By so doing, reducing the number of days it takes them to close a loan, by so doing, getting better premiums on those loans, and as a result, being able to provide lower interest rates to those end consumers, which will have... a ripple effect, again, on increasing demand on their end because their interest rates are lower than their competitors. We want to be there when that happens. And we are fortunate enough to have enough runway to, to be there when it happens. So in 2023, we need to continue our, develop, our product developments. As I mentioned, we do not support currently the Fannie Freddie use cases. We need to add the data schema that follows the standards and connect a few integrations. Compliance, for example, we talked about compliance earlier. That's the first thing that we need to do on the product side of things. And the second thing is improve even better the infrastructure. So we could get 30 clients immediately up and running, 50 clients in, in a matter of weeks, which is something un- unheard of in the mortgage industry. And then we believe we could be there.
0: Elon, it's been fantastic chatting to you and fantastic hearing a bit of the, the behind the scenes, as it were, of, of the American mortgage market. Yeah, all those nuances are actually quite intriguing and affect customers in ways you might not expect. So thank you again for your time. If people want to reach out to you to talk about Elfie, perhaps they're in the mortgage industry or they just want to learn a bit more about the business, where can they go to contact you and where can they go to track its progress?
1: Reach out via email, e i l o n at Elfie.io, Elfie is E-L-P-H-I dot I-O. They can also go to the website, Elfie.io, and read more about what we're doing and also follow us on LinkedIn. If you do reach out to me on LinkedIn, just say that you heard me on the podcast and I'm trying to connect with people who have a real material reason to meet with me.
0: Just one thing in in terms of the the name and the, the elephant mascot, is there a story behind that at all?
1: Well, at the beginning, I was researching blockchain. And I really believed in the technology. I still do, not for the mortgage industry, to be honest, but learning about blockchain and the immutable record that was touted time and time again, and the fact that Elfie is supposed to be the system of record. The idea was that elephants never forget, and neither does our system of record.
0: Thank you very much, again. yeah, It's honestly been a great chat. And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform, and share the updates widely on LinkedIn, where lending nerds are found in our largest concentration. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited by Fina Charlson of FC Productions. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show. And I'll see you again next Thursday.